Hello everyone and welcome back to UFOs and other paranormal stuff. My name is Andy and this episode will be about reincarnation. I have found three stories on the subject, quite interesting stories actually I think. One story is about Jenny Cockell, an English lady who in the mid-1990s came to fame for writing about her claims of reincarnation. The second story is the case of James Leininger, an American case of reincarnation. Uh, that was suggested to me by Jean uh, through the Facebook page for UFOs and other paranormal stuff. Thank you, Jean. And the third one is the case of Carl Eden, an Englishman whose story I found to be very, very interesting indeed. But first of all, I'd like to give a big shout out to everybody who has joined the Facebook page. Thank you very much and spread the word. Share to your friends, please. I also want to say a big thank you to Steve and Aidan who sent me some photos of things that they saw in the sky. Aidan, I agree with you. I think that the one that you saw was Elon Musk's Starlink satellite. I think that's what they're called. Steve, yours seems to be a little more, how can we say, otherworldly, possibly. I don't know. Uh, anyway, the pictures will be up on the Facebook page today. So join the Facebook page, have a little look at that, see the pictures, see what you think. And as always, don't forget, if you wish to get in contact with me, please do so via the email at ufosandotherparanormalstuff at gmail.com. That's ufosandotherparanormalstuff at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can send a message or put a post up on the Facebook page. Type in UFOs and other paranormal stuff. Uh, Twitter is at UFOs and OPS. That's at UFOs, A-N-D-O-P-S. And of course, you can catch up with me on Instagram as well as YouTube. So how is everyone doing? I hope you're all doing well. It's really, really hot now where we are. We got to 27 degrees Celsius yesterday, and for where we are, that's that's quite a rarity. And it is nice when it comes about, though. It is better than the cold, horrible rain that we've been having. Hopefully, the weather is nice and perfect where you are. Anyway, on with the show. Today's show, like I said, is about reincarnation. Uh, the first story is about a woman called Jenny Cockell. Jenny Cockell, an English podiatrist who lived in the Midlands of England in the mid-90s, came to fame for writing a book about her claims of reincarnation. In her book, Yesterday's Children, Cockell discusses what she describes as past life memories of the life of Mary Sutton in the early 20th century in Ireland. The book chronicles Cockell's research into Sutton's life and her subsequent reunion with Sutton's children, some of whom accepted Cockell's as the reincarnation of their mother, and all of whom accepted her memories as being those of their mother. Thirty years ago, Jenny Cockell travelled from her home in the UK to Malahide in County Dublin. She was visiting for the weekend, and she instantly started to recognise places in the local area. I noticed that things had changed, like the builder's yard uh, being replaced by a supermarket and the old jetty being upgraded to a nice new concrete jetty, she says. It was a homecoming of sorts for, Je for Jenny, 
But the strange thing is that she had never set foot in Malahide before. That was the first visit in June 1989. Her vivid memories came from what she says is her past life as an Irish woman called Mary Sutton, who actually died 21 years before Mary was born. Corkell describes how reporters from the BBC and the Society for Psychical Research interviewed witnesses who stated that she had spoken about her past lives in childhood and named Malahide as the location. She claims to have drawn a map of Malahide in childhood in front of a witness. Coquel first started talking about her dreams and memories of Mary when she was four years old and after corresponding with a local man whilst researching in 1989. She found the family surname was Sutton. In 1988, she underwent hypnosis, after which she claimed to have recovered a few more memories. One of the places that Jenny felt compelled to visit during her trip was the small house where Mary had lived with her husband and children up until the 1930s. I knew the house was grouped with a few other houses, opposite a boggy meadow. When I walked to where I thought the house was, there was just ruins there. I had got there just in time because the ruins were only there for a short time afterwards until a development was built on the land. Jenny, who is now in her 60s and has written about her experiences in another book called Journeys Through Time, first started to get flashes of past lives during her early childhood. I started talking about these memories before I turned four, and I thought it was what everybody experienced, she says. I had a tiny fragments of dozens of dozens of memories, but there were four past lives that came through the strongest, and the memories of Mary were strongest ones of all. The most vivid of the memories was Mary's death in 1932 at the age of 35. She had died in the Rotunda Hospital soon after giving birth to her eighth child. I remembered feeling so upset and guilty at leaving my children, said Jenny. There was this sense of wanting to see what had happened to them and make sure they were all right. It was only when Jenny got married and had children herself that she began to think about tracking down Mary's family in Ireland. I wanted to make sure that if I traced the family, I had every detail right, she said. I was afraid that I might find a family quite similar, but that it mightn't turn out to be them. In early 1988, Jenny was put in touch with a regressionist who agreed to put her under hypnosis. Jenny said that she didn't think the hypnosis would work because despite all expectations, I'm actually quite a sceptical person. It was a frustrating experience at times, and I wasn't comfortable with it until it confirmed that some of the details were spot on. Eventually, Jenny decided that her search couldn't progress any further unless she actually visited Ireland. Just after that trip, she made the connection to the Sutton name and the further investigations revealed the first names of some of the children. I did worry for a long time about contacting Mary's children, she says. I was very concerned that approaching them could do them some harm.
but ultimately I thought I would make contact and leave the decision to them on whether they wanted to talk to me. Jenny put adverts in Irish newspapers and was contacted by John, one of Mary's sons. I felt very awkward talking to him, she said. What should I say? He gave me the details for his oldest brother, Sonny, in Leeds, and I spoke to him on the phone. At this time, a TV producer in the United Kingdom was interested in making a documentary about the story. Before Jenny met with Sonny, the producer interviewed them separately to get their recollections. Always a good idea. In total, nine pages of information matched with Sonny. It was important that there was independent research by a third party, but for me, this was less about proving reincarnation than it was about finding what had happened to the family. It turned out that most of the other children had been placed in orphanages and that the youngest daughter had been adopted. Only five of the siblings were still living when they were reunited in the 1990s. Not everyone was fully convinced that Jenny was the reincarnation of Mary Sutton. Sonny accepted me as Mary mostly because there were things that I knew that he said, how can you know that? Some of the girls couldn't quite see it as reincarnation and, as I said, they didn't have to look at it that way. I think instead they saw it as their mother working through me. Jenny remained in contact with Mary's children and was particularly close to Sonny up until his death in 2002. There are, of course, sceptics who remain unconvinced by Jenny's past lives. I don't really need to respond to those criticisms, she said. I can only explain what happened to me. I grew up with people telling me that what I was quite sure was real wasn't real and I wouldn't want to do that to other people. I understand sceptics are uncomfortable with the idea of reincarnation, but they haven't experienced what I have. It feels lovely now that I have retraced more about my past lives through writing the book. I've found out answers to things that seemed unresolved in my mind. While a lot of the memories are still there, if I want to access them, I feel at last that I am able to live my own life. There you have it. There's an account of Jenny Cockell, the English woman who says that she was reincarnated as an Irish woman from the 1930s. Her book, Journeys Through Time, Uncovering My Past Lives, by Jenny Cockell, is out and available now. So what do you think about that? Please let me know. Uh, it's Reincarnation, it's a very sort of strange subject isn't it even in the paranormal circles a lot of religions uh, believe in it of course um, apparently those in Alaska believe in it so much that they even choose their next parents before they've died the next case of reincarnation is the case of James Leninger an American case of reincarnation this was suggested to me by Jean through the Facebook group UFOs and other paranormal stuff. If there's anything that you would like me to talk about on the podcast, please do send me stuff or post it uh, even to the Facebook page. The case of James Leninger. Now, I have to admit, I've never heard of this case either at all. I've heard 
uh, little bits about reincarnation elsewhere, but I've never, ever, ever heard this one. But I did find details of it on the internet on the case report written by Jim B. Tucker, MD. James was born on April 10th, 1998. As, a re- as related by his parents, the first notable incident in the case occurred in February 2000 when he was 22 months old took him to the Kavanaugh Flight Museum outside of Dallas, as they were living in Texas at the time. James was fascinated by the planes, and in particular by the World War II exhibit. When they left after three hours, James had some toy planes, as well as a video called It's a Kind of Magic, about the Blue Angels and the Navy's flight exhibition team. James loved the video, and he watched it repeatedly for weeks, The trip and the video started, or uncovered, his love for planes. This passion may have led to some of the knowledge of planes and the flying that James often surprised his parents by voicing. The video, however, was clearly not the source of James's information about World War II, since the Blue Angels group was founded in 1946, just after the war had ended. James and his father made a second trip to the museum later that spring on Memorial Day weekend. James was again excited throughout this time there, though he grew quiet in the hangar that housed the World War II aircraft. He stood staring and pointing at the planes, as if in awe. Within two months of the first trip, James developed a habit of saying, airplane crash on fire and slamming his toy planes nose first into the family coffee table. He repeated this behaviour over and over, producing dozens of scratches and dents on the table. James's father travelled a lot, and when James and his mother would see him off at the airport, James would often say, Daddy, airplane crash on fire. This happened repeatedly, despite the father's admonishments. Also around this time, James began having nightmares. His Behaviour during them seems to have involved only screams at first, but then included words as well. Airplane crash on fire. Little little man can't get out. In their book, James' parents quoted him as saying, Airplane crash, plane on fire, little man can't get out. But in an earlier writing and an earlier interview, they used the the shorter quote. James would shout this over and over while thrashing about and kicking his legs up in the air. After a few months of this, he had several conversations with his parents about the dreams, usually as he was preparing to go to sleep. He indicated that they were memories of events from the past. He said that his plane had crashed on fire and that he had been shot by the Japanese. Two weeks after those statements, James said his plane was a Corse Air, which was a fighter plane that was developed during World War II, and he talked about flying a Corse Air several times. On August the 27th in the year 2000, when James was 28 months old, he told his parents that he had flown his plane off a boat. When his parents asked the name of the boat, he said, Natoma. After that conversation, his father searched online for the word and eventually discovered a description of the USS Natoma Bay, an escort carrier stationed in the Pacific during World War II. 
He printed out the information he found, and the footer of the printout includes the date he did. James' parents asked him a number of times for the name of the little man in his dreams. He always responded with, only me or James. A few weeks after James gave the word Matoma, his parents asked him if he could remember anyone else who was with the little man. James responded with the name Jack Larson. One day, when James was just over two and a half, his father was looking through a book he was planning to give his own father for Christmas, one called The Battle for Iwo Jima, 1945. His father reports that James pointed to a picture showing an aerial view of the base of the island where Mount Suribachi, a dormant volcano, sits, and said, that is where my plane was shot down. His father said, what? And James responded, my airplane got shot down there, Daddy. A week after that, James's father talked to a veteran from the Natoma Bay who remembered a pilot named Jack Larson. He said Larson flew off one day and never returned, so no one knew what happened to him. With the ongoing nightmares, James' parents eventually contacted Carol Bowman, who had written a book about the child's past life memories. They began a lengthy correspondence. Following Bowman's advice, James's mother started acknowledging to him that the events he was describing had indeed happened to him before, while emphasising that there were in the past, and he was now safe. The nightmares grew less violent and less frequent. James's parents said that when he became old enough to draw, he drew hundreds of battle scenes involving planes. He signed them James III. When his parents asked him about this, he said the three referred to not his age, but to him being James III. And he continued to sign his pictures that way even after he turned four. James may have thought of himself as the third James because James Huston, the pilot, was James Jr. In June of 2002, James's parents were interviewed by ABC News for a segment that was to be part of a program called Strange Mysteries. The program never aired. At the time of the interview, Huston had not been identified Following the interview, James's father corresponded with an ABC producer about the name Jack Larson. She had a contact at the Centre for Naval History who found a John M. Larson. Sometimes people who are called John are nicknamed Jack, though it was ultimately determined that this man was not the Jack Larson on Natoma Bay. The correspondence between James's father and the producer is useful as a documentation that he was indeed searching at the time for a man with that name. Two months later, James' father wrote a letter to the veteran who had told him that Jack Larson had served on the Toma Bay. In the letter, he mentions this John M. Larson, again documenting this part of the search. A month after that, James's father attended his first Natoma Bay reunion, he learned that the Jack Larson from the Toma Bay had survived the war. Though he was not at the reunion, he was still alive, and James's father soon visited him. He also learned that only one pilot from the ship was lost during the Battle of Iwo Jima. 
the 21-year-old from Pennsylvania named James M. Huston, Jr. After the reunion, James's father turned his focus to Huston as documented by a posting he made on a website looking for information. He learned that Huston did not actually die on Iwo Jima itself. Instead, as the battle continued after the initial assault, he was one of eight pilots from the ship who took part in a strike against transport vessels in a harbour on the nearby Chichijima as the Japanese were preparing a build-up of troop replacement and supplies. It turns out that his plane appears to have crashed exactly as James had described it. The aircraft's action report for the day that Huston's plane was shot down includes a chart of the paths each pilot took. Jack Larson, the one name James gave, is shown as the pilot of the plane next to Huston's. As Huston was the only pilot from the Terma Bay killed during the Iwo Jima operation, and as his details closely matched James's statements, his parents concluded that he was the man whose life James had recalled. James's parents said that he gave other details as well, but no documentation of them exists that was made before Huston was identified. James's mother said she made notes of his statements, but that she either lost them or threw them away after she and her husband wrote their book. James's parents reported that he gave details about his family life that they confirmed with Huston's sister in a phone call. She was 91 years old at the time and was unable to recall the details of the conversation from some five years before, other than James's mother asked whether her father was an alcoholic at one time, which he was. James's parents reported that he had knowledge about World War II planes in general and about life on the Toma Bay that impressed them. His fascination with flying and World War II might explain his general knowledge, but not his ability to give details about the Natoma Bay that his parents did not know. You have to ask yourself when it comes to reincarnation, how is it these people, especially children, know very intimate details, very small details about things that happened way, way, way before they were even born? Of course, the internet does hold a lot of information and people can find out information from it. I don't think that's the case for James Leininger. I definitely don't think that's the case for Jenny Coquel or for Carl Eden, both of whom had their experiences way, way before the internet was even a thing. That brings me on to the third story, that of Carl Eden. Carl Eden was born in the early 1970s in a place just not so far from Middlesbrough in the northeast of England. Ever since he was very young, he had nightmares about fire, about glass, and about, turned out, nightmares about a plane that he was in crashing. Sounds very much like James Leininger, doesn't it? Well, the similarities don't stop there. Throughout Carl Eden's childhood, he would have these nightmares about a plane crashing. The detail of the nightmares evolved a little bit. It turns out that the plane that he was in, in these dreams, was shot down, and of course it crashed. In these terrible nightmares, of which Carl would wake up absolutely screaming and crying, 
he detailed that his leg had come off. There was a fire, there was glass. His leg had come off and he was in serious amounts of pain. He also detailed at the age of about two or three that he was very scared because he knew he was going to die quite soon. Of course, that worried his parents very, very much indeed. They didn't know what was going on. This was the early to mid-1970s, of course. Reincarnation was not the thing that was talked about, of course. They grew even more shocked that during school time, Carl would draw symbols that strongly resembled the Nazi swastika. Questions were raised at school, too, when he started goose-stepping and performing a Nazi salute. This drew laughter and a bit of shock from the children, but quite a bit of shock and annoyance from the teachers, many of whom would have lived through devastation caused by Nazi Germany to Middlesbrough as, as well as the rest of Europe during World War II. Carl's father decided to investigate a little bit more and asked Carl some questions about the visions that he was now having and about the nightmares that he'd had before. In the investigation, Carl mentioned that he had been the pilot of a Messerschmitt bomber. His dad thought this was a bit weird. There were no Messerschmitt bombers. As to his knowledge, the Messerschmitt was usually used as a fighter plane, not a bombing plane. Carl also detailed in extreme detail the uniforms and the emblems that they had to wear. He also detailed the induction ceremony that he partook when he joined the Luftwaffe. Carl immediately jumped up to attention and performed a Nazi salute when he saw a picture that his dad displayed to him. That picture was of Adolf Hitler. Of course, that did surprise Carl's father. You must remember that in the early 1970s, that any mention of Adolf Hitler the Nazis or the war, especially for being on the German side, would have been seen as, basically, for want of a better word, disturbing, to say the least. Carl's father did carry on with the research, visiting libraries here, there and everywhere, and eventually found out, to his surprise, that there indeed had been Messerschmitt bombers in existence in those days. Unfortunately, Carl's parents could not remember if it was known as a 101 or a 104. Carl's memories and past life dreams carried on throughout his childhood and into young adulthood too. But of course, because of ridicule from friends and the press who wanted their little piece of pie, Carl decided that he would say no more about it. And that turned out to be ever. When Carl was an adult, he started working on the railway. And at the age of 22, he was working at the Load Hall Grangetown Rail Depot as a relief train repairer. Wednesday, the 2nd of August, 1995, was just another normal working day for Carl. He sat in a cabin by the rail track and was interrupted by a colleague, Gary Vinter. Gary was actually called Douglas, but went by the name of Gary. Vinter was 26 years old and working in a nearby signal box, responsible for ensuring that oncoming trains were going down the right sets of tracks. He'd broken away from the signal box and made his way to Carl's cabin to pass some time. When he stepped into Carl's cabin, an argument started, which culminated in Carl shouting at Vinter, something he'd never seen before, 
as he had never watched him lose his temper. When the giant Vinter laughed at being shouted at, Carl grabbed a knife from the sink and threatened to kill him. In the subsequent struggle that followed, Vinter overpowered his colleague, wrestled the knife from him and stabbed him. The first knife broke, causing Vinter to simply put it on the floor and fetch another knife to continue stabbing Carl Eden. Very tragically, Carl Eden died from his injuries. However, the story doesn't stop there, because only a few months later, new tracks needed to be laid and a new configuration of layout needed to be put in place at that very spot. While the railway workers were digging up the old track, digging up the dirt and the earth underneath it, they struck something hard that had been buried under the ground. They called for the site foreman to come over and take a little look. The site foreman decided that a major excavation of whatever this was being buried needed to be done. And so they set about excavating the very large item from the ground. As they uncovered it, they slowly realized that this was a downed warplane. Further examination revealed that this plane was a Luftwaffe plane and had been downed in a bombing raid over Middlesbrough during World War II. The remains of two bodies were found outside of the plane, of course buried in the dirt just like the plane was too. When investigators got to the cockpit of this burned out, crashed out, shot down old piece of wreckage, they found the body of a pilot. His remains badly burned and his leg had broken completely off. Every single detail of the crash, of the plane, of the uniform, of the man that had been piloting it had been foretold many years before by the little boy, Carl Eden. The story was so intriguing that it went worldwide, including, of course, into the German newspapers, and it was picked up by an investigator in Germany. He investigated the case and he found that the pilot was called Heinrich Richter. And in 2015, he contacted the descendants of Heinrich Richter to let them know the story. They sent the investigator a photograph of Heinrich Richter, who indeed he passed on to the family of Carl Eden. Carl Eden's mother and father were shocked. Shocked because... All the details that Carl Eden had given them were absolutely spot on. But also, the resemblance between Heinrich Richter, who had died in the 1940s after being shot down over the sea coming into, coming into Middlesbrough, was so alike with that of Carl Eden, that even they said that he could pass as a family member of Heinrich Richter more than of their own. So there you go, the strange story of Carl Eden and Heinrich Richter. Even more stranger because of the not just the reincarnations, but the coincidences surrounding it. Other stories of reincarnation state that people are just reincarnations of other people who have lived on Earth. Carl Eden seems to be reincarnation of somebody who died right near to where he lived. 
And even stranger than that, this Heinrich Richter just happened to die meters away from where Carl Eden himself was tragically taken down. Lots of food for thought there. Let me know what you think of the episode. Let me know what you think of reincarnation as a whole. Of course, please do keep sending your stories to UFOs and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com. Don't forget to put your thoughts and stories up on the Facebook page as well. Take care, and until next time, I will see you very soon.